a very short passage to read at the front here. We have some extra ones in the message itself. Let us pray, then I will read three verses from Matthew 18, uh, 18, 19, and 20. Let us pray together. Father, tonight, upon the occasion of your word being read and preached, it is our great need, O Lord, to be helped. Father, you know our weakness, our many infirmities, when it comes to the work of worship. Lord, we are a weak people. We are both weak by, by nature. We are also weak by the times in which we live. Lord, there are many things that are against us. But we praise you, O Lord, that through Jesus Christ, you are not on the list. You are not against us. You are for us. It has been testified to our soul by your word and spirit that you who did not spare your one and only son will now clearly and graciously give us all things. How could you withhold from us the help we need upon the occasion of your word being read and preached when you have not withheld your very best, your beloved, So, Father, we pray in the confidence of Christ crucified for us, risen for us, coming again for us, even now interceding for us. We pray for the help we need for the matters that are before us in your word. Help us hear. Help us believe. Help us even reform our lives accordingly in what we do and what we think. To the praise of your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word. We return then tonight to the very sober teaching of our Lord Jesus on the subject of church discipline. We were just two weeks ago in this very same passage, working through 15, 16, and 17. So here before us, the Lord continues to establish and to advance his own rule on how the church should deal with members who have gone astray. Now the Lord started to open this rule to us back in verse 12, where he said that in his church, when even one sheep goes astray, that one sheep is to be sought after. We must not despise the sheep who goes astray. We must not say to ourselves, good riddance, that fellow was such a nuisance. Let's be happy he's gone. Let's not lift a finger to make him think we want him back. 
We must not think that way, speak that way, or act that way. All that kind of thinking not only makes us more like the devouring devil and unlike Christ, the good shepherd, beloved, that kind of thinking hardens our heart even against the very gospel of our salvation. We start to think the kingdom of God is only for the strong, only for good people who do good things. The truth is the kingdom is for the sick, for sinners, for those harassed by the world. It is even a kingdom for those harassed by their own flesh and harassed by the devil. We were all lost when Christ came to seek us. We shouldn't be too surprised to discover we are still prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I've I've seen some of you make that very confession, singing a hymn from our book. What should surprise us, then, is not that one of us wanders. What should surprise us is that no one comes after us. That would be surprising because it would mean the gospel is no longer the blood and the bones of the church. Well, last time that we were in this passage, we heard some of Christ's rules for his church. Mainly, Christ expects expects us to do with our prone-to-wander brethren the very same thing Christ has done with our prone-to-wander selves. We must seek to recover them from sin when they sin against us. That's verse 15, 16, 17. The rule our Lord gives there is quite methodical. It's discreet. It is careful. And granted, it does not cover every possible scenario, 15, 16, and 17. It is largely concerned with sins that are private and have taken place among equals. But the big picture is this. In Christ's kingdom, we do not get to despise the one who goes astray into sin. We must do what we can to bring him back to the healthy and the holy bonds of gospel love in Christ. Now, when we come upon verse 18, this goal of gaining back our straying brother is still very much dominant in the frame of our Lord's teaching here. What the Lord says in verse 18 is not meant to just give us metaphysical insight into the relation of heaven and earth, what the Lord says is meant to strengthen the church's resolve to do this important work. The Lord declares that he himself is in the work the church is doing in pursuing straying members. Verse 18 says there is a relation between the work of the church on earth and the work of the Lord in heaven. They move in sync. What the church binds on earth, the Lord binds in heaven. What the church looses on earth, the Lord looses in heaven. Now this is meant to encourage us, chiefly. It's meant to encourage those who would go after the strays. It encourages us to seek church members 
who have wandered off into sin. The work in doing so is the Lord's own work. It is as if he is reaching out for the stray member himself, but doing it through the arms and the faces and the words of the earthly church leaders and members. But what does the Lord mean by bind? What does the Lord mean by loose? Well, to bind something in Scripture is to take hold of it in order to remove it. To take hold of it in order to cast it out. Because it defiles or it corrupts. In Matthew 12, 29, it is Satan who is bound like a strong man. Same Greek word as our text tonight. In Matthew 13, 30, it is the weeds which are bound and cast into the fire. In Matthew twenty-two thirteen, it is a false brother, a wicked imposter at a wedding feast, who is bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. So the binding of verse 18 is the church reaching to stop behavior or to stop doctrine which is worthy of judgment. And to stop it at the end of a methodical, discreet, careful process that has already been started and stated in verse 15, 16, and 17. And when there is no success, it is time to bind. Now let's remember, the only reason the church takes up this power, which verse 18 gives to her, is because the offender would not stop on their own this wrong behavior or this wrong teaching. If they would have stopped, the offender, or will stop even now, at even a late point in the process, there is no need for the binding action of verse 18. In fact, if the offender stops in repentance and faith after step one, or after step two, or after step three, then the church is eager to use its power to loose the offender, declaring that they are forgiven, that they have repented. Let us remember, there is no sin by a church member that cannot be forgiven except one. And that is the sin of contumacy. Contumacy is the sin of refusing to repent for whatever, whatever matter, conduct or doctrine, one has gone astray in. Now this brings me to the power of loosing. We've talked about binding. To loose something in scripture is to restore it. To restore it to God's service without continuing any censure or sanction. To declare it whole again. In Luke 13, 16, Jesus looses a woman who had been bound by Satan for 18 years. In John eleven forty four, Lazarus has come out to the mouth of his burial cave. He's all wrapped up, and Jesus calls for the crowd to loose him and let him go. In Acts two twenty four, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, Peter says of Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible 
for him to be held by it. So the loosing of verse 18 is the church reaching to welcome or to even admit a new member or to declare whole a believer who can return to walking, serving, and communing freely as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Practically speaking, loosing is even letting a new member into the church. When the church declares that they have made a proper and credible profession of faith, that they have repented of their life of sin, and that they are fit in the bonds of the gospel to commune with the church. Now, I have said a word or a phrase a few times that may have stuck in your ear, and I want to recognize I have used it, and, may, and I now go on to explain it. And that phrase is church power. Church power. I have never had anybody come up to me and say, Pastor, can we talk more about church power? People get squeamish about church power. I don't think they should regret it. Jesus himself taught us that those who were in Moses' seat abused church power. They laid burdens upon the people of God that they themselves wouldn't even keep. They rejected the commandments of God, those clergy of Jerusalem in our Lord's day. They rejected the Lord's commandments so that they could keep their own traditions. They had taken a magisterial role, legislating new rules for the church. That's what they did with their church power. The Lord Jesus himself made us squeamish about church power, but he did not tell us that fleeing from it was an option for a child of God. The church has been invested with power by her Lord. The power to bind and the power to loose. But this is not a power the church has taken to herself. Church power is limited to that power which Christ has bestowed on his church by his word. The church can exercise no power apart from the word of Christ because the church has no original authority. The church only has a derived authority. It is Christ alone who has original authority, which means it is Christ alone who has magisterial authority in the church. He alone can write the legislation. He alone issues the commands. But the church itself only has a derived power, which means its authority is always and only ministerial not magisterial. Think of the word steward when you hear ministerial. What does a good steward do who serves his magisterial master? A good steward simply takes what belongs to his master out of the cupboards that his master has put in there and purchased, (coughs) 
and purchased, he takes it out of the cupboard and serves it and sets it before those in his master's house. He himself doesn't own the house. He doesn't own the things the master has provided. He simply serves them. So church leaders are only taking what already belongs to Christ and setting it before his people in their use of church power. They are bound by the word. Now this kind of church power is exactly what the Lord is bestowing on the church in verse 18 of tonight's text. The power to bind, the power to loose. But we heard of this power earlier in the Bible, in Matthew's Gospel. We heard of it in chapter 16, verse 18, where our Lord Jesus said, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the power of the keys is the power of opening or of closing the door of the church. Opening to those seeking admission, closing to those who deserve exclusion. Church power is so limited by the word of Christ that once the church is closed to someone, the church has run out of a use of its power against that person. We cannot follow that person out beyond the church into civic society and impose any kind of further censure upon them. For example, it would be an abuse of church power to close the church to an unrepentant member. To close, what we mean by close the church is not allow them any longer to commune at the Lord's table. It would be an abuse to then start posting on Facebook for all to see further complaints against them. Now we also hear, not only in Matthew 16, we also hear the Lord bestow the same church power on the church in John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. John twenty twenty one. The power to forgive sin and withhold forgiveness is a power parallel to loosing and binding in tonight's passage. And it is parallel to opening and closing in the Matthew 16 passage. But all three of these passages are speaking of the same thing. The power and authority that Christ has bestowed upon his church. Now it is often the case that we hear about these things in Matthew 18, 18. And our mind races into all sorts of interesting speculations. We wonder, 
Does this mean that the church, in its binding and loosing, is somehow forcing the hand of the Lord in heaven to imitate or mimic the church's decisions? Not at all. We have already spoken carefully about this in making the distinction between magisterial and ministerial. What is actually happening is that the Lord Jesus in heaven is through his word coming through the church to loose and to bind, to open or to close, to remit sins or retain sins. He is coming through his word through the church, having his will enforced through a derived power that he has bestowed upon men on the earth. As the church follows his word and declares a behavior or a doctrine false, and a member does not repent and persist in holding to a behavior or doctrine that is false, and the church binds them to remove them from the Lord's table, to remove them from good standing in the church, the church is doing the very will of Christ. And it is recognized by him as his will because it was already revealed in his word. There are many wicked men who will ridicule the judgment of the church and they will declare that they will look to a higher court. They will let God acquit them. And they dismiss the judgment of the church and flee with a great inflation in their chest of pride. Well, beloved, in tonight's text, our Lord Jesus is actually helping them. Because he is popping the balloon. He is popping the balloon in their chest, the inflation of their pride, where they think that they can go right around the church and its power and appeal to Christ in heaven. He simply comes back to them and says, my answer has been given in the use of the keys that I have given my church. And of course, by this we understand the church that follows his word. Not the church that becomes magisterial, creates its own laws, and then casts out members who don't follow its own laws, which are laws that are not of God. That, of course, was the exact condition that our Lord found the church in Jerusalem in under the Pharisaic administration in the Sanhedrin. And it is a condition that is found in churches today upon the earth. So our Lord, even in verse 18, has come to help those who are going astray that think that they can appeal to a higher court. The Lord is saying, no, my court isn't only in heaven. My court is even now upon the earth. You may have heard that theologians often rightly describe our Lord's current session as his present enthronement as king, as his present rule and governance of his church 
at the right hand of God in heaven. It is his session. A king is in session. Well, this is the reason why the elders of a local church are called the session. Because they are an extension of Christ's kingly office. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with something that perhaps nobody has ever tried to encourage you with. And I say it that way not because I'm trying to think of myself as special and unique, but I think these things, I'm afraid, have been kept from the ears of the children of God too long. One of the great blessings that Christ has for you is to know on this side of Judgment Day that you are in good standing with Christ by the way your local church session uses the powers of the keys. Has your local church session opened the table of the Lord to you? Have you made a credible profession of faith? Are you walking in a godly way as the, as the best that weak sinners can do? Are you striving to follow Christ and the session sees your faith hears your confession, sees your walk, and admits you to the table. They have opened the door with the keys of the kingdom, and it is a testimony to you. It is to be a great encouragement to your soul that the King Jesus Christ, even now, through your local church session, is testifying to you that you are in good standing and that you are welcome. Over the 13 years that I've been a pastor here, one of the unusual blessings that have come to different members is to come to the session as their own accuser for some sin that they got entangled in. And they, of course, are the first one to know. And they come to the elders and say, I have fallen into this sin. I was involved in a one-night stand. I stole from my employer. I hit a member in my house. And they've come and they've accused themselves. And that means they are already repenting. They are already saying, I want the help of my session to loose me, to restore me whole and welcome to the Lord. I want to know on this side of Judgment Day that I am right with the king. And so I come to the king's officers and I put myself under the power that my king has bestowed upon his officers. And the church session works with that dear member to go through a process of repentance and restoration that is almost always secret to the congregation. And they are asking the elders to use the keys of the kingdom because they are the ones upon whom Christ has bestowed them chiefly. Beloved, this is how church power works. It is not 
designed to drive away sinners and drive out sinners on the lightest infraction. It is always designed to gather in sinners, to restore sinners. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, after all, who descended from heaven and took upon himself our human nature to suffer so that our sins would not separate him, separate us from God's eternal glory. Our father in the faith, John Calvin, had a very helpful remark regarding our text tonight. He said, whoever, after committing a crime, humbly confesses his fault and entreats the church to forgive him is absolved not only by men, but by God himself. And on the other hand, whoever treats with ridicule the reproofs and threatenings of the church If he is condemned by her, the decision by which men have given will be ratified in heaven. Beloved, the the purpose of our Lord's rule tonight is not to create a board of puffed-up church leaders who are proud of their power and pounding on their chest like some gorilla named Samson at the Milwaukee Zoo. The purpose of our Lord's rule tonight is to give his little flock of weak and wobbly sinners confidence and joy and peace of spirit year after year that they are walking rightly with their king. And of course, I say it again, all of this works beautifully when the local church is bound over to only a ministerial ministerial authority under the king's word. I want to say just one brief thing about verse 19 and verse 20. In verse 19, the Lord is reminding us that none of this is to proceed. None of this use of church power is to proceed without prayer. Those who have the keys of the kingdom, church officers, they do not have it within their own abilities to use those keys without calling upon the king himself and asking for his help. And so verse 19 is a verse of prayer. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where we agree according to the word of God and ask for things we know the Lord Jesus approves of, the Lord serves us and leads us. And this is reinforced, of course, in verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Why would the Lord Jesus Christ be among those who are praying to rescue one straying sheep from sin? Why would the Lord Jesus Christ be among them? Well, he would be among us for the same reason he first came among us in the flesh 
to deliver us from sin's power and sin's penalty, to gather us to his Father, to reconcile us, to wash us and cleanse us and fill us with his Spirit. That's why he's now among us even still as we pray to rightly discharge and serve sinners in the use of church power. I hope it's very clear to you in conclusion that everything the Lord is teaching about the use of church power is for the purpose of continuing the very work the Lord Jesus Christ himself has come to do. I have come to seek and save the lost. That's what church power is about. If it's not used to recover, to restore, to win, it is an abuse of church power. To say it another way, church power is not a Cadillac, newly polished, that we all pile into and drive around and show off to people, hey, look at we have church power. Church power is cruciform. It is redemptive. For that is her king. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would continue to give us wisdom, to give us understanding, to give us conviction, to give us commitment to the things of your word. Lord, we pray that church power, rightly ordered, would be a great blessing to your people. That a great peace would be upon those who are always being admitted to the Lord's Supper. Oh Lord, we pray that this would be a great encouragement to them as they draw near to even the end of their life, whether with expectation of that day or sudden discovery that the day is upon them. Lord, it is your zeal and your love for your church to have her know that she is at peace with you. We thank you for your love and zeal for this. May each and every one who has heard these things tonight take this like Mary and treasure it in their heart and cast out their fears and strengthen their assurance. For this is your design. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.